good morning, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for bringing us here safely today. We want to thank you for bringing us through this week and giving us another Shabbat, another day to rest and to focus on you. We ask that you would be with us this morning during this class, and Father, that you would help me to communicate your heart on this subject. Be with us. Help us, Father, above all to rekindle our relationship with you and to be closer to you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Last week we introduced the subject of offense. We talked about what offenses are, why we hold on to them, how they affect not only us but others, and how devastating they can be. We looked at the life of Joseph and saw how God was able to use intentional hurtful actions for good when Joseph surrendered to him rather than holding on to grudges and seeking revenge for himself. We also introduced the word scandalon, which is something I want to talk about a little more this morning. And I want to show you why I ended last week's class by saying that Yeshua is the ultimate scandalon. And that word can be translated as stumbling block. Okay. But first, I want to start out by looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. And I'm going to start reading. In verse 14, to the angel of Messiah's community in Laodicea, write, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Oh, that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I have made myself wealthy, and I need nothing. But you do not know that you are miserable and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white clothes so that you may dress yourself and so the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And you may be wondering what that passage has to do with offenses, but there's some good lessons we can learn from that passage. First, we see in that passage that Yeshua speaks to the church at Laodicea and he reveals the people's true condition, that they are, quote, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, end quote. They, however, erroneously believed that they were spiritually strong because of their financial strength. So does anyone here know what the real meaning of the word Laodicea is? It actually has a meaning. It's interesting. It means human rights or the rights of the people. And I found that very interesting because when you look at this church and how they were operating, it is a very accurate description. They were governed by the will of the people rather than the will of God. These people had been bitten by the bug of complacency. They were spiritually arrogant in their self-satisfaction. And if you count Yeshua's comments about this church, you will find that he mentioned 11, a grand total of 11 bad things in his passage and zero good things. In fact, that's the only one of the churches in the book of Revelation that Yeshua did not commend for anything. His message was strictly one of judgment and a call to repentance. So it wasn't just judgment. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. So let's provide some context here about this church and about this city. Laodicea was a place of great finance and banking. But in 60 AD, the city was hit by a major earthquake. Its leaders refused the help of the Roman Empire because the city was so rich and instead rebuilt the city themselves. And I mention this because it helps us understand the verse where Yeshua says, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were indeed wealthy, but they were spiritually blind. Yeshua then counseled them to apply a spiritual eye salve so that they could see how far they had fallen. And then he invited them to seek him to repent and become zealous 
so that he could make them truly rich in the spiritual sense. One statement that you probably noticed as I was reading that that gets a lot of attention is that statement that, I wish that you were cold or hot. And there are several interpretations of that, and I'm sure you've heard sermons on that before, and it means that usually people tell you it means that the people should be either spiritually on fire for God or they should be away from him. There shouldn't be any of this middle-of-the-road stuff. But I want to throw out to you another interpretation. And I, this one is very simplistic, and I think this is probably more accurate about what Yeshua was saying here. The scholars that hold this, they say that this is a metaphor, that it refers to the water supply of the city. That water supply that went into the city of Laodicea was actually lukewarm. And that was interesting because there were these hot mineral springs at nearby Hierapolis that were used for medicinal purposes. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, we had this pure cold water that was at Colossae that was used as drinking water. However, that hot water, as it would come down from those mineral springs and come into the city, would become lukewarm. And it was then considered nauseous and undrinkable. So the imagery here would not be that hot means good and cold means bad but that both hot water and cold water were useful. You could use hot water for bathing and the cold water for drinking. Lukewarm water, however, was not usable. In other words, God is telling us, be usable. Don't be lukewarm. Just as that city's water supply from the hot mineral springs would not be useful once it had turned lukewarm, so that church was useless in its service to the Lord, and therefore Yeshua was ready to spit it from his mouth. Another passage in there that draws a lot of attention talks about the gold refined in the fire. Gold is a precious metal that in its purest form is extremely soft, pliable, and free from corrosion or other substances. It is only when it is mixed with other metals, such as copper, iron, nickel, and so forth, that it becomes hard and can be used for jewelry and other purposes. However, Making gold hard also results in it being less pliable and more corrosive. The higher the level of metals added to the gold, the harder it becomes. Fewer added metals results in softer gold. And this analogy also tells us something very important. When we allow offenses into our lives, we become hard, like that gold mixed with foreign metals. We focus on ourselves, withdrawing from others in order to prevent ourselves from being hurt. And that is just the opposite of what our Lord expects of us. He wants us to reach out and to give to others, but doing so also makes us vulnerable. In other words, pliable. But we still need to be willing to do so. Here is what Yeshua is telling us in this passage. A pure heart is one that is soft, tender, and pliable. And on the other hand, if you read Hebrews chapter 3, especially verse 13, what you find out is our hearts, are, our hearts are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. When we fail to deal with offenses, we become bitter, angry, and resentful. In other words, we're sinning. Our hearts become hard because of that unforgiveness, and we are less sensitive to others. It also becomes more difficult for us to hear God's voice. The truth is that in times of prosperity, our sins can easily be hidden, just as the Laodiceans appeared to be spiritual in the midst of their prosperity. However, when trials and afflictions come, the truth will then be revealed, because trials reveal what is truly in our hearts and lives. And it's the same with gold. When gold is refined, it's ground into a powder, and it's mixed with a substance that's called flux. That mixture is placed in a furnace and it's melted by intense heat. The added metals rise to the surface. The gold is heavier, so it remains on the bottom. So you separate the gold from the other minerals that have been added. Those impurities, which are now referred to as dross, are revealed so that they can now be removed and that yields a purer gold. Interesting because we see that analogy throughout scripture. One example is Isaiah 48.10, where God purifies us through the furnace of affliction. That verse reads, Behold, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction.
And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 expands on that concept. You rejoice in this greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. These trials are so that the true metal of your faith, far more valuable than gold, which perishes through refined, though refined by fire, may come to light in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Messiah Yeshua. While we may not see the offenses that we are holding in, guess what? God does. Often we will refuse to acknowledge that we are harboring an offense because we see ourselves as the victim. And we blame the person who hurt us. We justify our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our anger, envy, and resentment whenever they surface. No, I should feel that way because they did so and so to me. Just as Yeshua advised the Laodiceans, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see, we need to open our eyes and see the true condition through his eyes. Blaming others and defending our own position is blindness, blindness. Let's think back to the example of Yeshua. He was the only perfect person who has ever walked on this earth. Yet he was betrayed by a friend, he was beaten, and he was killed all based on false accusations. So how did he respond to those? We are supposed to be like Yeshua. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, for you were called to this, because Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return the abuse. While suffering, he made no threats. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. As believers, we are called to follow in Yeshua's footsteps. When someone does something to hurt us, we should follow Yeshua's example and be willing to forgive and not take vengeance into our own hands. That is how we gain the victory over being offended. God is the judge, and he will reward those who do good, and he will punish those who do harm. If we truly trust God, we need to leave the situation in his hands and allow him to work out things as he desires. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. And Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather than seeing ourselves as the victim, we should look at the situation and ask God how he would have us handle the situation. Last week I talked about a young lady, uh, some of the difficulties that she went through at a number of churches. She was ostracized by many of the women at those churches, and as I told you last week, she would become offended and just leave and go to another church, and it, that cycle just went on and on. It continued to repeat itself until eventually she just quit attending church, and then she ultimately walked away from God for a season. However, when God allowed her to work on herself and her responses to those actions, he showed her the truth of what had been happening. And then he sent her to a church where she could heal, a church where she would not experience that rejection. And this applies to all of us. In order to move on and have healthy relationships, we have to first learn to forgive and allow God to heal us of our hurts. Otherwise, what will happen is we will just take those hurts and that pain with us into those new relationships and the cycle will continue to be repeated. So hopefully I've given you a better understanding of what offenses are and why it is such an important topic for the believer. Now that we understand the problem, I want to talk about how we can resolve and even prevent offenses by forgiving, because that is the answer. In Matthew chapter 17, we read about an encounter between Peter and the temple tax collectors. In verse 24, they asked Peter if his master paid the temple tax. Peter went back to Yeshua, and Yeshua, anticip anticipating Simon Peter's inquiry, asked him, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter responded that they collect the tax from strangers. Yeshua then responded to him in verses 26 and 27. 
then the sons are free. But and catch this, because you probably never looked at this verse in terms of offenses, but it's really interesting. Verse 27 says, but so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw out a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a coin. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now the point of this story is that the sons are not obligated to pay the tax since they are sons of the king. Instead, they actually reap the benefits of the taxes that are paid by the citizens of the kingdom. The sons actually live in the palace, and that palace is maintained by the taxes. They eat at the king's table. They wear the royal apparel. That's all paid for by the taxes. They're not responsible for paying those taxes. They live free, and they're freely provided for. And as we all know, the temple is the house of God. Therefore, Yeshua, as the son of God, would not have been subject to the temple tax. However, in order to avoid offending, he instructed Peter to pay the temple tax for both of them. And I relate that story because it's a perfect example of something we see Yeshua communicating in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. In that passage, he said, But whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, just because we may be entitled to something, that doesn't mean we should insist on it. We've got to keep this, our relationships with others in mind. And he didn't want to offend these, these priests and so the Sanhedrin and all the others there at the temple. So what did he do? He did something he didn't, legally didn't have to do, and he paid the temple tax. The same can be said for offenses. We may be right in a situation, but that doesn't mean we should harbor an offense and we should try to prove that that other person is wrong. We need to learn to be a servant and put aside offenses because we are servants of the Most High God. And sometimes that means swallowing our pride and apologizing even if we are not in the wrong. Ideally, we would not allow ourselves to become offended, but guess what? We live in a fallen world. We're human. We will not always be successful in that endeavor. But when we realize that we are harboring an offense, we need to repent and forgive as quickly as possible. If Yeshua, the only perfect person who ever walked this earth, can allow himself to be abused, tortured, and even put to death when he didn't deserve it, false accusations, certainly we can swallow our pride and forgive a fellow brother or sister something that they did to us. When you have a few moments, I'd encourage you to read Matthew chapter 18. That entire chapter deals with offenses. And in it, Yeshua instructs those of us who follow him to get rid of whatever causes sin or offense, even if it's something that we are entitled to. Paul, in his writings, also admonishes believers to put aside their rights in order to live at peace with one another and display their love of their brethren. In order to get rid of our offenses, we need to forgive. And that may sound simple, but it's not always that easy. Forgiveness is very difficult sometimes. So I want to spend a a little bit of time now talking about why we must forgive. And notice I said must, not should, as well as the different types of forgiveness. And before we go any further, I want to make sure we're all on the same page and understand exactly what biblical forgiveness is. First, it's remembering how much we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 is a great reminder of this. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other just as God and Messiah also forgave you. We need to recognize that we have been forgiven and it is because of that forgiveness that we need to forgive others. If we do not truly believe that God has forgiven us, it will be much more difficult for us to forgive others. Second, forgiveness is relinquishing our right to get even. Romans 12:19 tells us to not avenge ourselves, but to leave it to God, because he said that he will repay those who do evil against us. We therefore need to leave the getting even to God and, make, and trust him that he will make the right decision, whether we ever see it or not. Third, forgiveness means we should respond to evil with good. This is a tough one. Luke chapter 6 verses 27 through 28 tells us to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, 
and pray for those who mistreat us. We know we have truly forgiven another person when we can look at that person. And when they hurt, we hurt, rather than just feeling our own hurt against them. And we can pray for sincere, with a sincere heart for God to bless that person. And guess what? It's possible. Because with God, all things are possible. If you can't do it in your own, ask Him to give you His love for that person. And just watch how He responds. If you are sincere in asking that, He will do it. And give you the ability to truly love that other person. Fourth, and lastly, forgiveness is repeating the process as many times as necessary. Remember that scripture I gave last week where Yeshua told his disciples to forgive an unlimited number of times? He specifically said, if he comes and sins against you seven times a day, forgive him seven times a day. And it's not a literal seven times. That isn't, in other words, he's saying however many times, forgive that many times. Now I want to look at another passage along those same lines, Mark chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. And this passage again tells us clearly that we must forgive. For this reason I say to you, whatever you pray and ask, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your transgressions. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your transgressions. Similar statements are made elsewhere in the Gospels. Yeshua is serious when he says that in order to be forgiven, we must forgive. I want to look now at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And it's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth listening to. Then Peter came to him and said, Master, how often shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Remember that passage, seven times a day? Yeshua said to him, no, not up to seven times, I tell you, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle up, a man was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he didn't have the money to repay, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. Then the slave fell on his knees and begged him, saying, Be patient with me, and I'll repay you everything. And the master of that slave, filled with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Now, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and started choking him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and kept begging him, saying, Be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. Yet he was unwilling. Instead, he went off and threw the man into prison until he paid back all that he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply distressed. They went to their master and reported in detail all that had happened. Then summoning the first slave, his master said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Wasn't it necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed mercy to you? Enraged, the master handed him over to the torturers until he paid back all he owed. So also, my heavenly Father will do to you unless each of you from your hearts forgives his brother. We see two important facts in this passage. First. Our unforgiveness is not to be limited. We need to continue forgiving. Now that doesn't mean we put ourselves in danger. Let's say there's someone who has a history of violence and that person wants us to forgive them. We can forgive that person, but unless that person has truly demonstrated that they're no longer violent, we shouldn't put ourselves in a position with that person where we could be in danger. Forgiving in such a situation might mean simply that we do not hold on to our anger to our resentment, and so forth. We release the other person to God so that God can work on that person. But we do not try to get revenge ourselves. Second, our forgiveness is dependent on our ability to forgive others. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about that subject. Because we can easily read this story and not understand the magnitude of forgiveness that the king had extended here. I read one computation that put the amount that that man owed as the equivalent in today's currency of about 4.5 
billion with a B. Now, whether that's the actual amount or not isn't the point. The point is this, that servant owed such an exorbitant amount that he would have never been able to repay it. That's the point. However, the servant pleaded with the king and the king forgave the debt. So how did this servant respond? He went to one of his fellow servants who owed him an amount that was a drop in the bucket to what he actually owed, the king, and he threw that man in jail demanding payment. The other servants were grieved and they reported it to the king and the king then demanded that this ungrateful servant be tortured and repay the original amount. So what does that mean for us? If we, who have been forgiven of much by our Heavenly Father, refuse to forgive others whose debts pale in comparison to ours, what we actually owe, we open ourselves to the enemy. His demons are able to torture us and keep us in bondage. Medical doctors and scientists have linked unforgiveness and bitterness with certain diseases, such as arthritis and cancer. And guess what? That lines up with scripture. One example is Proverbs 17.22 that tells us a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Scientists also tell us that resentment is the unhealthiest emotion there is. It always hurts you more than it hurts anyone else. Resentment will not change the past, and it certainly will not solve the problem. And rather than making you feel better, it actually makes you feel worse. Hebrews 12:15 is a great reminder of the destruction that can be created by refusing to forgive. And that passage in the Phillips translation reads like this. Be careful that none of you fails to respond to the grace of God, which gives. For if he does, there can be very... Let me start over again. Be careful that none of you fails to respond to the grace which God gives. For if he does, there can very easily spring up in him a bitter spirit, which is not only bad in itself, but can also poison the lives of many others. Think about that. We would never be able to repay the debt we owe because of our sin. But Yeshua died an excruciatingly painful death in order to pay our debt. Think back to his response as he hung there dying on that cross. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And guess what? In the book of Acts, we see a similar story with Stephen, the first martyr of Yeshua. He responded the same way as he was being stoned to death with Paul standing there holding the coats watching. He prayed that God would forgive them because they did not know what they were doing. Church history also tells us that James, Yeshua's brother, had the same exact response as he was being killed for his confession that his brother was indeed the Messiah. If these men, and everybody knows James the Righteous, James was held in high regard not just by the believing community, but by those Jewish people who did not believe in him, that Yeshua was the Messiah either. But they still had the utmost respect for James. He was considered righteous by everyone. If these men, and Yeshua himself, all being upright and excellent role models for us, can forgive people for murdering them so cruelly, how can we refuse to forgive each other and continue to harbor offenses? We should forgive because God wants us to do so. And also because our own forgiveness is dependent on our ability to forgive others. Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 and 15 reminds us, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. In other words, we cannot receive what we are unwilling to give. And we talked about last week that giving and the Dead Sea and the Jordan that goes through the Jordan, oh, the, excuse me, the Jordan River goes through, or the Sea of Galilee goes through the Jordan River and into the Dead Sea. And what happens when it gets to the Dead Sea? See, these other two bodies of water give. They take and they give. The Dead Sea, on the other hand, only receives. It takes and it takes and it takes and doesn't give. So what happens? It dies. We also need to recognize that Yeshua calls us to love one another. And if we love others, we will be willing to forgive them. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is imperative that we forgive. 
So far, I've been talking about forgiving others, but there are two additional levels of forgiveness I want to touch on real quickly. First one, did you know sometimes you may need to forgive yourself? Many times, we may actually be able to forgive other people, but we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. And we may know that God's forgiven us, but we just, for some reason, can't, can't forgive ourselves for what we've done. For those of you who remember Dan Whittemore, many times when he was here, he told the story of a lady that he met in a restaurant and a discussion he had with her that to this day still grieves his heart. She never told him exactly what she'd done, but she said that she, what she'd done was so bad that there was no way God could ever forgive her. And she wouldn't even go to God and ask forgiveness. And that's sad, because our God is bigger than anything we can do. And he can forgive us. But she was unwilling to forgive herself. Because she couldn't forgive herself, she didn't believe God could forgive her either. But he can when we truly repent. We must learn to extend forgiveness to ourselves. If God has forgiven us, we need to accept his forgiveness. And we need to do the likewise for ourselves. Now, this other one may throw you even more of a curve. So it's going to sound strange when I say it, but stick with me for a moment. We need, sometimes we may need to forgive God. And I know, like I said, that sounds strange, but sometimes we may be angry with God and may not even realize that we are holding something against him and not forgiving him. That story I related last week, and I know I keep coming back to this, but it is just such a perfect example of what happens when we allow ourselves to get offended. Like I said earlier, she walked away from church and even from God for a season, and God ultimately brought her back. She had to forgive others. She had to forgive herself. And in a sense, she even had to forgive God because the reason she walked away from God was, as I said last week, first, she took the position that, well, if God's people treat each other this way, I don't want to be a part of this family. From there, it was only a matter of time until she started feeling like, if God is like this, I don't want to be a part of his family. And she walked away. So she had to learn that that was not who God was and be able to forgive God and realize that, and herself, for feeling that way about him because she had falsely judged him. And the good news is that, as I said last week, he is love. And because of that love, he brought her back to himself. And this, I know you're not going to be able to read it, but I still wanted it up here. I'll, I'll walk you through it real quick. I found this slide on Facebook. A friend of mine posted it. And it was just such an excellent example. It's a summary of the two ways we can respond to an offense. And I know you can't read it, but at the very top square says, someone offends me. So you have path A or path B that you can choose. Path A is on the left. So it starts out and it says, it's, uh, it lets us know that it's up to us to make a choice. And it says, tell people all about it. I've been offended, let me tell everybody. The next one says, the listeners began to think less of my offender. Hmm. They joined me in speaking negatively about my offender. And then down at the bottom says, I have succeeded in causing others to sin, creating divisions in relationships, making myself more upset by rehashing the details over and over, and highlighted in yellow and in all caps, directly, knowingly, willfully obey, disobeying God's word by reacting according to my flesh rather than submitting to the spirit. So that's path A. Is that the path we want to choose? Okay. Now, path B, on the right-hand side, this is our other choice. We can go directly to God in prayer when someone offends us. He listens to me and gives me his better perspective. I feel peace. The need to vent to others is gone. I and in, in yellow highlighting, again, I have honored God by valuing unity over the very temporary pleasure of gossiping and gaining sympathy from others. Hmm. So, with that said, I want to get back to that Greek word scandalon. It's translated a number of ways in the New Testament. And the English word used for it varies from translation to translation. And I talked about it a little bit last week and explained to you that originally that word referred to the part of a trap to which bait is attached. 
Hence, it signifies laying a trap in one's way, which brings up the question of who's laying the trap, okay? The New Testament frequently uses it to describe an entrapment used by the enemy of our souls. Offense is indeed a tool of the enemy to bring us into captivity. So I want to look at a few examples of how that word scandalon is actually translated in our New Testament, or Brit Hadashah. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, and this is Yeshua speaking, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin. That's that word scandalon, and all evildoers. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, we see this, but Yeshua turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, scandalon, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Luke 17, 1, Yeshua said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling, scandalon, are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. Romans 9.33, as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, that word scandal on. Romans 14, verse 13, Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of one another. Again, scandal on. Here's a good one, Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses. There it's translated directly as offenses. In opposition to the teaching that you have learned, avoid them. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we proclaim Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Galatians 5.11, but my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? This is Paul. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Here's 1 Peter 2.8. It says, a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the last one I'll give you comes from the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. He laid a, a trap. He set out that bait for them so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornications. These passages reveal to us that Yeshua is the ultimate offense, as I t ended my class with last week. 1 Peter 2, 6-8 tells us this, for it says in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen precious cornerstone. Whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now the value is for you who keep trusting, but for those who do not trust, the stone which the builders rejected, this one has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Remember back to Simeon? He testified of this fact when Yeshua's parents brought him to Simeon to be circumcised. Luke 2.34 puts it this way. And Simeon offered a bracha, a blessing, over them and said to Miriam, his mother, Behold, this one is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that is opposed. During his ministry, Yeshua offended many of the religious leaders and in fact, they frequently opposed him and ultimately sentenced him to death because of that offense. So I want to look at a few of the specific circumstances where Yeshua offended people and the various groups. This is by no means a comprehensive list. It's just a, a brief snapshot. In Matthew 15, 7 through 12, it says, Hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then Yeshua called the crowd and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that makes the man unholy, but what comes out of the mouth, this makes the man unholy. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense 
when they heard this saying? Okay. Now, what about the people in his own hometown? Matthew 13, 55 through 57 says this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Miriam and his brothers Jacob and Joseph and Simon and Judah? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, a, product, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own house. Which brings us to his own family. Mark chapter 3 verses 21 and then 31 through 35 says this. When his family heard about this, they went out to take hold of him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Then his then starting in 31. Then his mother and brothers came. Standing outside, they sent word to him, summoning him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and mother and sister. Members of Yeshua's own family at this time didn't believe his claims, and they were offended. In fact, it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that James, Jacob, realized that he truly was the Messiah. And as we talked about earlier, he even gave his life for that profession. But guess what? Yeshua's own disciples at times were even offended by him. We see that in John chapter 6. And three verses I want to look at from there, verse 60, 61, and 66. So when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? But Yeshua knew his disciples were murmuring, so he said to them, does this offend you? He was pretty direct about that. From this time, many of his disciples left and quit walking with him. They were so offended that they left him. And I could give you more examples, but I think you get the idea. Yeshua was indeed an offense in so many ways. He truly offended many, many people during his ministry years. And guess what? He continues to do that today. Many times we as humans don't want to admit our faults and our sins because of our pride. And we believe if we're called to admit that, that we have to admit that we're wrong or that we need to repent, that we need salvation because we're not good enough in and of ourselves, we can find that offensive. But guess what? There's only one way to the Father, Messiah Yeshua. You can't get around that. If we want to be part of his family, we must accept him, we must repent, and receive Yeshua as our Lord and Savior. And offensive or not, there is no other way. So what about you? Does Yeshua offend you? Is there something in your life that doesn't line up with his teachings? Are you harboring unforgiveness because someone has hurt or offended you? If they did, how do you respond? Remember, how we respond to Yeshua's offense has eternal consequences. And as we prepare to end this lesson, I want to do as I did last week. I know I've thrown a really heavy lesson on everyone, so I want to close it out with a song because I know it has been difficult for all of us to, to face this. And this song, and I thought I had it on my iPod, and it turns out it's out there in the cloud. So um, Brad has pulled up. We hope we've got the right one. We'll find out when it starts here. If not, we'll, we'll resolve it. He's trying to pull it from YouTube. And it's from a contemporary Christian artist who was very popular in the 80s. So I'm going to date myself here. It's actually from 1985, and the artist is Michael Card. And those of you who are familiar with his music may know where I'm going with this right now. The title of the song was none other than Scandalon. Talks about Yeshua being an offense and it raises a challenge of us today. So if you could go ahead, I want you to really listen to the words.
Along the path of life, there lies a stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some, he is a barrier. To other, he's the way. For all should know the scandal of believing. Pretty powerful words. So here's a challenge for all of us. If, you're, if any of us are hurt, harboring hurt, resentment, or anger because of something that someone did, or something maybe we just thought someone did that's a misunderstanding, we have to release it to Yeshua. We need to be willing to do so. If you haven't made a decision about Yeshua, I think everyone in this room probably has or you wouldn't be here. But those online, there may be some folks that are watching because they're curious. You need to find, be offended, and realize that you have to confess your sins, and you have to repent of your offense, of your offense in him, and your pride, and allow yourself to be broken so that you can be made whole. Don't let your pride stand in your way so that you are crushed and risk losing your own soul. I don't know what each and every person who's under the sound of my voice has been through, but I do know this. I know what unforgiveness will do. I've seen people grow increasingly bitter and hard because they were harboring an offense and they refused to forgive. Because that other person was wrong, I'm not. That's the person that needs to come and apologize to me. It hinders their relationships with others. But most importantly, it hinders their relationship with God. That's not what the Lord has in plan for us. No matter how large or how small that offense is, he wants something better for us, freedom. And we find that freedom in forgiveness. Forgiveness is both the solution and the prevention for offense. Before offense sets up and we start becoming bitter and resentful, we need to forgive. If we let ourselves get to the point where it becomes bitterness and hurt and anger, even then we need to release it. And guess what? It's almost impossible to do by ourselves. It's through his power that we can truly forgive. So, if you're harboring unforgiveness against anyone, and that means even against your own self, or if you're angry with God, you're, hurt, you're resenting him, something you wanted him to do that he didn't do, it's time to release it now to him and ask him to help you forgive, because he will. So let's go ahead, and I want to close this out in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word that you've revealed to us. You revealed it through it through your scriptures as well as through your son. We just thank you for the records we have of his life that have come from those first century believers that documented all the miracles that he did and, and how he fulfilled the prophecies that documented that for us, for future generations. And we just so thank you for preserving that word for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to take your teachings on offenses to heart, that we would realize it is something that in our society we've come to accept as just normal, but it isn't normal. That should not be in the life of a believer. Help us to truly be willing to forgive one another, realizing that we have been forgiven much, just as like that servant. Because we have forgiven much, we should be willing to forgive others what they've done to us instead of following in his example. Help us to follow in Yeshua's example, in Stephen's example, in the example of James and so many others throughout history that have been willing to put their pride aside and to pray for their offenders, and to truly forgive. As the song told us, Father, we, we need to be broken. We need to find healing and forgiveness. And if we hold on to that unforgiveness, we can be crushed. And we don't want that to happen, Father. We want to be truly free in you. So Father, we come before you today, just asking that you would help each and every one of us to examine our hearts and make sure they are pure before you. If there is something that we're harboring, that we're holding in, give us the power through your spirit to release it. Give us love for one another, even those who have hurt us, even if it was intentional. Most of the time it's inadvertent, it's a misunderstanding or it's something someone did they don't even realize they did. But there are times when people do it intentionally. Even in those situations, help us to forgive, to rise above it and to pray for that person, that you would open that person's eyes, that they would be able to repent of what they've done. So we thank you and praise you for all you've done. In Yeshua's name, amen.